Uh, well, I am a man who goes by many names. And this came to my attention a week ago. I was on my way to the West Coast to see my daughter, Emily. Emily lives in the Portland area. And when I saw her at the airport, she threw her arms open wide and said, Dad, which is one of the names I go by. I love it when she says, Dad. Although when she gets annoyed with me, she says it in two syllables, Dad. Some of you parents know, know the sound of that. So that's, that's one of the names by which I go. Uh, when I was flying to Portland, I was almost going to miss a connecting flight, so I had to race to my gate, and I handed my boarding pass to the lady. The rest of the, uh, of the passengers have, had already boarded, and I'm charging down the tunnel toward the plane, and I hear, James, James, which is another name by, by which I go. It was the name on, on my boarding pass, so I retraced my steps, and the, the woman with the boarding pass in hand said, did you intend to get on a plane to Winston-Salem? I had raced to the wrong gate. Yeah, yeah. Well, fortunately, I ended up in Portland where I was supposed to be, and uh, during the course of the week, I would call Sue on the phone, or we would text back and forth, and she calls me dearest. Isn't that nice? Dearest. So it's sometimes dad, it's sometimes James, it's sometimes dearest. I brought my laptop with me to Portland. I had some work to do. One of the things I was working on, I was writing letters to some Bible scholar friends of mine who I'd like to endorse my soon-to-be-published book, Bible Savvy, and I signed all those letters, Dr. Nicodemus. See, whenever you're talking to academics, you pull out your title. It's the only people who care, you know? <laughs> So Dr. Nicodem. And then on the way home, I decided to stop in Denver for a couple of days. Last weekend, I was in Denver because my college roommate lives there, and I wanted to hang out with him, and he calls me Jimmy, the only person in the world I allowed to call me Jimmy, you know, because I stopped using that name when I was like eight years old. But, but when he says, Jimmy, it reminds me of our longstanding friendship. And then I got on a plane from Denver to Chicago. This time I was on the right plane. And as I'm making my way to the back of the plane, a very crowded plane, a lady who's already in a row, she looks at me and she says, I know you, Pastor Jim. I go to the DeKalb campus. So, so many, many names by which I go, each name has a special significance. We're about to begin a five-part series at Christ Community Church that focuses on the names of Christ, specifically the names that were given him at his birth. Each name holds special significance. So if you brought a Bible with you, would you turn with me to the very first book of the New Testament, the first chapter, Matthew chapter 1. This is an Advent series. Okay, you want to get your outline out because I'm going to give you some things that will help you, help you prepare for the Christmas season. In fact, this series is going to climax at our Christmas Eve services. So, let's take a look at the very first name that we're going to study together. It's the name Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel. And we're going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Let me read it to you. If you don't have a Bible, you could follow along on the screen. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now stop there for a moment. In, in that culture, in that day, pledged to be married was a legally binding agreement. Okay, it was, it was almost as if you were married when you were engaged. In fact, if you broke up the engagement, it was considered to be a divorce. If you fooled around on your fiancé, it was considered to be adultery. 
So even though Mary is still living at home with her mom and dad, she's not gone to live with Joseph yet. She would, she would have referred to Joseph at this point in time as her husband. Okay, it's, it's a legal engagement. So she's pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, just a nice way of saying before they had a sexual relationship themselves, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Matthew's going to tell us a couple of times that this baby conceived in Mary's, Mary's womb is conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, this is, uh, strictly speaking, the baby is fathered by God. So, conceived by the Holy Spirit, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly, break the engagement. See, Joseph has been to freshman biology class. He knows how babies are made, and the only thing he can figure out is that Mary has been unfaithful to him. Verse 20, but after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's the name we're going to look at next weekend. Verse verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him, here's today's name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. So today we're going to take a look at this name, Emmanuel. What is the significance of Emmanuel? What does this name tell us? Three very important truths. Write these down. Number one, tells us Christ is God. Okay, God with us. It tells us that Christ is is God. Now, Matthew says in verses 22 and 23 that I just read to you that, that the name Emmanuel was to be given to Mary and Joseph's son in fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. Uh, Matthew actually quotes 47 different Old Testament texts in his gospel because Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. They knew their Old Testament, their Bible. And so he would frequently appeal to the Old Testament. So I want us to take a look at that ancient prophecy that Matthew is referring to, and you'll find it in Isaiah chapter 7. So keep a finger here in Matthew chapter 1, but turn to the Old Testament. Shortly after the book of Psalms, you'll come across this whopping big book, Isaiah, and turn to chapter 7. And I want you to see this in context. So if you brought a Bible, don't just sit there, really turn, okay? Let me read to you several verses from Isaiah's prophecy, and just a little bit of background before I read it. The year is 735 BC. King Ahaz of Judah is in trouble. Now, Judah is southern Israel. At this point in time, Israel is split into two countries, northern Israel, southern Israel. Southern Israel is called Judah, and southern Israel is being attacked. It's being attacked by two enemy countries, northern Israel and Aram which today we refer to as Syria. Okay, some things never change, right? So King Ahaz is under attack. His capital city of Jerusalem is under siege. And a prophet by the name of Isaiah shows up and he says, King Ahaz, don't worry, God's going to deliver you. And as a sign that he is going to deliver you, a virgin is going to give birth to a, a baby boy named Emmanuel. Okay, that's the background. Let me read the text to you, beginning at verse 14. Very familiar words here. 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. You will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Okay, again, Isaiah says, God is going to deliver you, King Ahaz, from these two attacking countries of northern Israel and Aram. And as a sign that God will fulfill this promise, a virgin is going to give birth to a boy. And before that boy reaches adolescence, okay, before he reaches puberty, God is going to, is going to deliver you. He's going to lay waste these other kings. Sounds like a line out of a Clint Eastwood movie. Going to waste them, okay? Now, interestingly, this prophecy came true about a dozen years later, okay? Assyria, a new superpower on the, on the block, was stirred up by God, and Assyria attacked northern Israel and Aram, and by destroying these two countries, the, the stress, the pressure was lifted off of King Ahaz and Judah, now, this little historical scenario raises a couple of important questions in our minds. Question number one, let's put these on the screen. Who was the virgin-born boy in 735 B.C. who served as a sign that God was about to deliver Judah? Okay, Isaiah had said, as a sign of the promise that God's going to deliver you, a virgin's going to give birth to a boy. Who was that boy? Bible scholars make several suggestions. The, the, the most likely candidate is a little boy who at birth was given the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. You won't find that in a baby name book. In, in fact, I don't know if I could even say it again, so we'll just call him MSHB. Okay, that's what his buddies on the playground called him. Now, who, who was MSHB? Well, MSHB was actually a son of Isaiah the prophet. See, when Isaiah made this this, this prophecy, a virgin will give birth to a child. Shortly after he made the prophecy, he married a young maiden, a virgin. It was actually his second wife. His first wife had died, and then she gave birth to a son that they named MSHB. And a dozen years later, as the boy was growing up, God raised up Assyria to destroy northern Israel and Aram and take the pressure off of Ahaz and Judah. You following this? But that raises another important question in our minds. Question number two, well then why does Matthew say over 700 years later that Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy? Okay, the, the prophecy has already been fulfilled, right? 700 years earlier. So why does Matthew come, come along? Why should anybody expect another virgin-born boy? The virgin-born boy has already come. The, the answer to this question is that the first fulfillment of the prophecy had been a partial fulfillment. The first fulfillment in MSHB had only been a partial fulfillment. Go back to Isaiah 7. Now in Isaiah 7, Isaiah says that a virgin's going to give birth to a boy. But then he goes on to describe that boy in greater detail in chapter 9. So flip over a couple of pages to Isaiah 9, and let me read a very familiar Christmas text. In fact, if you like Handel's Messiah, you're going to recognize these words. They, they, they're the lyrics of one of his songs in Messiah. Verse 6 of Isaiah 9. This is a fuller description of the virgin-born boy. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now let me ask you a question. What merely human boy could possibly fit that description? Certainly not Isaiah's son, MSHB. You know, not, not one of your kids. Not, not one of my kids. Yeah, I know some of you parents, you like to brag about your children, constantly update their photos on Facebook, but really, would you ever say about one of your sons? Yeah, we like to call him Prince of Peace. Yeah, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, you know? I don't think so. I, the person that's being described in Isaiah 9 verse 2 must be divine, must be God come in the flesh to fit these descriptions. Mighty God, everlasting Father. The, the full fulfillment of this prophecy is met in Christ. This is a description that fits Mary's baby boy. As I pointed out earlier, as we read in the Matthew passage, two times we're told that th this child is conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit of God. Matthew 1, verse 18, Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. A couple of verses later, verse 20, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, friends, why it is absolutely essential that Jesus, Mary's baby, be fully God. Okay, Jesus came to earth on a mission, and he describes this mission for us in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. J Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. To give my life as a ransom. That was Jesus' mission. What's he talking about? Ransom. Here it is in a nutshell. You and I are sinners, you know, there isn't a day that goes by that we don't flagrantly disobey God in, in, in some way, shape, or form, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. Okay, we're rebels at heart. And, and when we rebel, when we disobey God, we are rebelling against the giver of life. And that's why the sentence for our sins, the payment for our sins, is death. Romans 6, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. And when the Bible talks about death, it's not just talking about physical death, it's talking about spiritual death, eternal death. That's what we deserve for defying the giver of life. So Jesus comes to earth on a mission. His mission is to ransom us from death. But th this presents a problem for us. I mean, do, do, do the math here, if you would, Okay. Jesus comes to give his life in exchange for our lives. That's how he ransoms, ransoms us. But how can the life of a single individual compensate for the lives of potentially billions of people who have sinned and so are captive to death? You following my question? So how can one life be the ransom for potentially billions of lives? It doesn't compute. Unless, unless that one single individual life be of infinite eternal worth. Now, what would cause a mere human life to be of infinite eternal worth? Well, how about if that single individual life is the life of one who's not just fully human, but is fully God. The God who is infinite, the God who is eternal. 
You, you see why it's absolutely essential if Jesus is going to fulfill his mission, if he's going to be our ransom, that he be fully God as well as fully, fully man. There's a, a, a footnote to this point. I, I, I hope that this helps you to understand why Jesus Christ is the world's only possible Savior. I, I, I know that it's not popular to say that in our pluralistic culture. It's more popular to say, hey, whatever you want to believe in, whomever you want to believe in, it'll get you to God. But friends, that's, that's sheer nonsense because it fails to recognize we've got a problem. Our, our problem is we can't get to God as long as we're captive to sin and death. We've got to first be set free. We've got to be ransomed. Who is going to ransom us? There is only one person in the history of the world whose life is of infinite eternal worth who could provide a ransom for all who would put their trust in him, and that is Jesus Christ. There is no other Savior but Jesus. I can't believe you're this quiet. Let's try that again, okay? At our other campuses, you can participate too here. Here we go. There is no other possible Savior but Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Emmanuel means Christ is God. It takes one who is God to provide a ransom of infinite eternal worth. By the way, have you ever been ransomed by Jesus? Have, have you ever been ransomed from the penalty and the power of your sin by Jesus? And if you say, well, yeah, I'm not sure, then, then you probably haven't been because if you had been, you'd be sure. You'd know it. And, and before our service is out today, I'm going to give you the opportunity to be ransomed by Emmanuel, God with us. Here's the second significance of the name. The name, Emmanuel, also communicates that God is near. It is God with us. Us emphasis on with. I got a uh, a cell phone call in the middle of the week this past week, and I looked at the caller ID, and it was so many digits long it barely fit on my screen. And I thought, oh, this has got to it's got to be some spam call. I mean, I have never seen a number that long, so I was going to ignore it. But the phone continued to ring, and so finally, I thought, oh, I'll pick it up. And I said, Hello. It was my son Andrew calling from Kenya, Africa. And uh, he's a photojournalist for a missions organization, and they move him from country to country. And uh, each country he goes to, he blogs and, and uh, takes pictures of stories, things God's doing in the lives of the people through that missions organization in that particular country. So as I'm talking to him, you know, I just, I love the sound of his voice, but I wish he were here. Okay, especially over the holidays. Eh? By the time I hung up, I thought, I wish he were here. Now, as long as he'd be here through Christmas, and then he could go back to Kenya. But <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. This is how we're wired, right? We, we want to be near the people we love, especially at the holiday season. We, we have, we've been hardwired to be relational beings. Now, I want to take you to a scripture that says this, the very first chapter of the Bible. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. This is some really important stuff here. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. 
Then God said, this is the beginning of time, okay? Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, now the question is this, what does it mean that God created us in his image? Theologians have wrestled with this question for centuries. You know, they call it the uh, imago Dei, the image of God. They like to throw around Latin, theologians. What does the imago Dei consist of? One of the ways we know in which God has made us like himself is that we've been created to be relational beings. Keep in mind that the God we worship is described in Scripture as a trinity. He is a three-in-one God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. Right, Right here in verse 26 that I read to you, God says, let us make man in our image. Who is the us? Who is the our? It's God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So when God makes us, like himself in his image, he, he builds in re, relationality. I just made that word up. So, re, re, he's made us into relational beings. Even if you're an introvert, even if you're a loner, God has designed you for relationships, not only relationships with people, but most significantly a relationship with God. Now, flip ahead a couple of chapters in the book of Genesis to chapter 3 because I want you to see what happens to that relationship with God early on in the history of humanity. Go to chapter 3, verse 8. I'm going to read the first half of the verse and stop, do a little explaining, then we'll, we'll finish the verse in a moment. Then the man and his wife, okay, this is Adam and Eve who've been made in the image of God, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Stop there. I love this description here of God being out for a stroll. He's gone to hang out with his peeps, Adam and Eve, okay, in the Garden of Eden, in the cool of the day. If you've ever been to the Middle East, it is stinking hot all day long. And then in the evening, some gentle breezes bring cooler air. And so God, God's out taking a walk, going, going to chill with Adam and Eve, kind of like when friends get together at Starbucks. So, so God wants to be with them, emphasis on that preposition with, God with us. He's created us for the enjoyment of this relationship with him. Now let me finish the verse. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why would they hide from God? You know, we might also ask, how did they think they could get away with hiding from God? Dumb idea. Let's hide from God. Why were they hiding? Well, the the first seven verses of the chapter tells you why. They had sinned. They, They had flagrantly disobeyed God. God had put them in a virtual paradise with one commandment to obey, don't eat from a certain tree. And, of course, they rebel against God. They rebel against the giver of life. And they eat from that tree. Now, let me ask you again, what is is the ultimate punishment for rebelling against the giver of life? Call it out, all the campuses. Death. Spiritual, 
physical, eternal death. But along the way to that ultimate destination, the Bible also teaches that sin causes us to experience an alienation from God, a sense of distance from God. Almost as if if we're hiding from God. Now friends, isn't that ironic? God has designed us specifically designed us to enjoy relationships, especially a relationship with him, but sin pushes him in the opposite direction. Sin holds a holy God at arm's length. What what can be done about this problem? Well, God eventually sends his son into our world, and when Jesus arrives on the planet in the little town of Bethlehem, he's given the name Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, something is about to change. God is not content to be distant from those he's made in his image. God wants to be near. How's that going to happen? How does Jesus close the gap between a holy God and sinful us? Once again, he does it by paying for the sins that had pushed God away. And then offering forgiveness to all who will surrender their lives to him. And that's why the most significant mark of a Christ follower, I want to ask you, is this true of you? Okay, the most significant mark of a Christ follower is an ever-deepening relationship with God. The most significant mark of a Christ follower is a sense of God's withness. It's a growing experience of God's nearness. Is this true of you? I started reading an amazing book this past week. The book is called A Big Life. And it's a a collection of true stories, modern-day stories, of people who have begun a relationship with God, withness with God, through Jesus. And the, uh, the very first story grabbed my attention in the prologue to the book. It's a story about a guy named Faisal. Faisal grew up in Pakistan. As a boy, he was sent to a madrasa where he learned the Quran and where he learned how to be a devout Muslim, and where he learned how to hate infidels. And then when he was a young man, he was recruited to become a jihad soldier. He was sent to Afghanistan for training, and he learned how to use a variety of weapons, and he learned how to blow things up, and he learned how to establish spy networks, and how to live in the middle of nowhere and and survive, how to lay down his life for the cause. And then Faisal went back home to Pakistan to live with his father and work for his his dad until such time as he was called, as he was called to jihad. So one day he's sitting outside of his parents' house sipping a cup of tea and there's a a wind blowing and it blows a piece of paper by and he reaches down and he picks it up. It's a torn page from a book and he reads, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. It's obviously a torn page from a, from a Bible. The, this is an excerpt from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And even though it's diametrically opposed to everything that Faisal has been taught, blessed are the merciful? Are you kidding me? Faisal has a sense that it's true. He, he wants to know where he can get more of this. And so he contacts a friend of his, a Muslim who's become a Christ follower. And he shows him the page and he says, what is this? And his friend looks at it and he says, well, it's, it's Jesus. And Faisal says, oh, it's words about Jesus. And his friend says, no, it's words of Jesus. 
Jesus is God. Jesus is Savior of the world. Jesus is speaking to you, Faisal. Faisal is so blown away by the thought that the God of the universe would speak to him, would want a relationship with him, would want to communicate with him, would want to be near him. That Faisal, this jihad warrior, surrenders his life to Jesus Christ. You know, Emmanuel means that we can experience God's nearness through Jesus Christ. Are you experiencing that nearness today? You know, it begins when you surrender your life to Christ. If you've never done that, that's what you got to do to experience the nearness of God. But let me tell you, even if you're a Christ follower, you can sacrifice a sense of that nearness by allowing other things to rob you of of that closeness, that withness with God. You know, busyness can do it, especially this time of year, right? Idols can do it. If you're pursuing something else in your your life, if football has become all important or shopping or Facebook, or, or you could squeeze the nearness of God right out of your life. Unconfessed sin will do it. If you're sitting here today and there's stuff going on in your life that you need need to repent of and you've not done like a 24-hour cleanup, asking God to forgive you and restore you and cause you to walk in paths of righteousness, you're going to lose all sense of God's nearness, even as a Christ follower. Neglect of God's word, neglect of prayer, neglect of gathering for corporate worship will rob you of a sense of God's nearness. The most distinguishing mark of a Christ follower ought to be the withness of God. God with us. That's what Jesus came for. In fact, here's a bonus thought. We've been looking at Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, telling us how God created us with this built-in capacity for withness, nearness, relationship with Him. Now you go to the bookend, the the last book of the Bible, and it tells us about the ultimate experience of this witness in a new heaven and new earth, a place where Christ followers will spend eternity. I I, want to read just one verse from that description. This is what the new heaven and new earth are going to be like. This is Revelation, last book of the Bible, second to last chapter, chapter 21, verse 3. You got to listen to this. John the Apostle, who's writing this, been given a vision of the new heaven and new earth, says, And I heard a loud voice from God's throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. What is the most distinguishing trait of the new heaven and new earth? Call it out. The presence of God, God's withness. God's nearness. You know, I hear people talking about heaven from time to time, and they describe it as the place where, you know, they're going to play unlimited golf. You know, where where they're going to see Aunt Beverly, who died a few years ago to cancer, and now she's got a new body and is dancing around. Or where they're going to be reunited as a family. And all of that is true. I'm not sure about the golf part. But, you know... All of that is true, but it's not what's most significant about the new heaven and new earth. What is most significant is God's going to be there. And we're going to experience undiluted withness. This is is why you were made. 
In, in fact, if you're not looking forward to this more than anything else in life, you're not going to like heaven. Because <laughs> this is what heaven is most, most about. God with us. You get it? God. One more mark of significance here about this name, Emmanuel. It means God is for us. It means God is for us. Uh, Tim Tebow was in the news again this uh, past week. For the past couple of weeks, some of his teammates on the New York Jets said some nasty things about him. Of course, they were cowards, said it anonymously. But that didn't stop the newspaper from printing it all. And so there was a fracas. And if you're a football fan, football fans have been talking about it. And I, I overheard a couple of people talking. I love to eavesdrop. And it was at, you know, it was at a coffee shop or the airport or someplace. And, you know, one person was saying to the other, well, I just don't think football players should be praying about the football game. You know, I mean, what do they think, really, that God is on their side? I mean, stop and think about it. Is, is the other team praying as well? So now whose side is God going to be on? And the person to whom they were talking, they said, well, I don't think that's what they pray about. You know, I, th I think when they pray before a game, what they're praying is that God will keep them from injury or help them to do their best or whatever. And I'm thinking, this is very interesting stuff. kind of wanted to join in to the conversation, which I didn't. But isn't it silly to, to think that God would be on our side, that God would be for us? Well, it's silly if you're talking in terms of a football game. But let me tell you something. God being for us is actually one of the meanings of the name Emmanuel. Let me explain. The literal translation of Emmanuel, of course, is that God, God is with us. Now, on one level, that's not such a startling statement, is it? God is with us. Because we say, well, yeah, of course he is. God is everywhere. He's what theologians refer to as omnipresent. God is with everybody, everywhere. Well, if this is all that's meant by Emmanuel, God with us, that God is omnipresent, then why does God take it upon himself to repeatedly state throughout Scripture, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you? Did you know this is the most repeated promise in Scripture, God saying, I will be with you? Why does God feel the need to say this if it's such an obvious truth that it's just a statement of his omnipresence? Because it's more than that. It's not just a declaration of God's omnipresence. If we trace all the references to God's withness in the Bible, we discover a pattern. We discover that this is not just a statement about God's omnipresence. This is a statement about, listen, about God being for those people who put their trust in him. God with us actually means God for us. God with us means God's got our back means God's in our corner. Now, let me give you a whole bunch of, uh, of examples of this from the Bible. I'm just going to barrage you with Bible references here, okay? It's going to be Bible buckshot. Uh, don't even try to write, uh, you know, to turn to all these passages. Just jot down the references. Look them up on your own because this is a truth, friend, that will change your whole perspective on life if you'll grab hold of it. The truth that if you're a Christ follower, listen, God is for you. God is for you. Okay, first example, Abraham. Abraham and his wife are struggling with infertility. 
They've reached old age, they still don't have any children, which in their culture was not only a heartache, it was a disgrace. But God shows up and God blesses them and they have a child and they have so many other blessings given to them that one of Abraham's enemies says, and this is Genesis 21 verse 22, God is with you in everything you do. Now what is that enemy saying to Abraham? He's not saying, well, God is omnipresent. No, he's saying it's obvious by the fact that God is blessing your socks off, Abraham, that he is for you. Here's another Example, Abraham has a great-grandson named Joseph. Joseph has 11 jealous brothers who sell him into slavery. So if you're a parent and you're, you're troubled about your kid's sibling rivalry, just keep Joseph in mind, okay? They sell him into slavery. And he goes to work for an Egyptian master by the name of Potiphar, one of the high officials in Pharaoh's government. Potiphar is a person of influence, a person of wealth. And this is what Genesis 39 verses 2 to 4 say about Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. God had Joseph's back even in the midst of this tragically unfair job situation. Is there a takeaway for anybody here? Then there's Joshua. You know, Joshua took over the leadership of the nation of Israel from Moses. Moses, one of the biggest heroes in Israel's history, delivers people from 400 years of slavery, takes them right to the border of the Promised Land. Then he dies, and Joshua's got to fill his sandals. You talk about being overwhelmed in life today. You think you're overwhelmed? Suddenly he's in charge of two million people and they're facing one of the biggest challenges in the history of the world. Take the promised land. And so a promise is given to Joshua in the midst of all this. Here's the promise. This is Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. God says to him, do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God is for you, Joshua. God is for you. What about David? You familiar with the challenges David faced when he was a little boy? He fought with the giant Philistine warrior Goliath. When he got a little older as a young man, he was hotly pursued by the jealous, crazy jealous King Saul who wanted to kill him. And then later in life, when David himself is king, his son Absalom, his son, stages a coup, and David has to run for his life once again. And yet this is the David who gives us the inspiring, immortal words in Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for the Lord is with me, with me. You know, what what enemy is hounding you today? You've got God with us. God is for you. Then there's Isaiah, the prophet. He's given the unpleasant assignment of telling the nation of Israel that they're about to go through really difficult, tough times. So what, what promise, Isaiah says, what promise can I give the people? And this is God's promise. You want to write this one down if you're in tough times. Isaiah 43, verse 2, when you you pass through the waters, I will be with you, 
I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God. I will be with you. I'm for you. Haggai, the prophet, arrived on the scene several hundreds of years after Isaiah. And the, the people have just returned from 70 years of exile in Babylon, and they've come back to Jerusalem, and their capital city is a pile of rubble. Even their beloved temple is nothing but, but, but a bunch of rocks. And they have the task now of rebuilding, and they're demoralized. And Haggai is saying, what, what can I say to these people that will help them, encourage them, get, give them the strength to carry out this rebuilding task? You need strength today for something you face? Listen to these words, Haggai 2, verse 4. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. I got your back. I'm for you. Give you one final example of the promise. I could give you many, many, many more from Scripture. But these are the words of Jesus himself. You know, this is the end of Jesus' ministry upon earth. He's died on the cross. He's resurrected. He's about to ascend to heaven. And his disciples hate the thought of losing their rabbi. But they get a big task ahead of them. They're going to launch a movement. So how can Jesus inspire them to carry on? What's he going to say to them? This is the closing line of Matthew's gospel, the last words out of Jesus' mouth in that gospel. He says, Matthew 28, verse 20, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Are you a Christ follower today? Then Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us is for you. God is for you. God has got your back. God is in your corner. Do you have a firm grip on that truth today? And a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to one of the guys in our worship band before a service at the uh, St. Charles campus. And he said to me, yeah, I learned this last week that I've got cancer. And they're, they're actually, they've sent the biopsy up to Mayo Clinic because they're not sure just how serious it is. It's potentially deadly serious. And that following week, he was going to have a port put in to begin his chemotherapy. And there he was playing in the worship band that day. And I thought to myself, a lot of people would be curled up in a fetal position about now, bemoaning their fate. And here's this, here's this brother standing up with his instrument in front of hundreds of people declaring the praises of God because he knows God is for me. God is for me. Yeah, I, I don't know what you face today. You know, maybe you're out of work. Maybe you suffer chronic pain. Maybe you're a couple that struggles with infertility. Maybe there's conflict in, in, in your marriage. Maybe you're suffering dark depression. Maybe the holiday stress has already set in. Maybe there's a pile of unpaid bills on your desk at home. Maybe you've just broken up with your boyfriend, your girlfriend. If you belong to Jesus, God is for you. I want you to say that with me. God is for me. Let's say it, all four campuses. God is for me. Say it again. God is for me.
Let's begin this season by celebrating the coming of Emmanuel. What a name, God with us. It means, first of all, that Christ is God, God with us. Christ is God. And unless he were God, he could not pay a ransom of infinite eternal value. But because he is God, he can ransom you. If you've never been ransomed, he could ransom you today. God with us means God is near us. He created you for an intimate relationship with himself. If he's not near to you today, if you don't sense intimacy with him today, maybe it's because you're not yet a Christ follower, or maybe it's because you've let other things steal that sense of nearness. Return to him today. His word says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. So get back into his word. Confess that unconfessed sin. Get rid of the idle temper with moderation, that thing that you pursue more than you pursue God. Because God God wants you to experience this nearness. And, And lastly, if you're struggling, know that God is for you. He hasn't abandoned you. God with you is God for you. 